Wow, where do we start on this one, guys? <laughs> it feels, yeah, man, it's been a while. I know. Hope everybody's doing well and being safe. Um, it's been a while for us, and and you know we are Jordan and I have been talking for the last few weeks as we've gone through this. We definitely want to address everything that's going on, and we're working on a a really good episode that we hope to do tomorrow. Correct? Yeah. Yes. 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 Um, and um, really kind of touch base with you guys and tell you. The good stuff, the good things that are happening, the good things we're doing, um, and some we're going to even ask around to a lot of our friends and people and the colleagues, other colleagues, to find out what what they're doing that's really positive to give you guys some good stuff to kind of get through this thing on the other side. Yeah, little quarantine check in, right? Just kind of how are people surviving? How are they making the best of it? And also like just how they're working, how that's you know you know how the relationship with the clients are going. I'm just curious how other designers are coping and killing it. And people are still, you know, handling their business. So I'm curious how that works. It's interesting too. We will <clears throat> definitely reach out to some friends and see what they say. But I, 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 I've reached out to a few and we've talked, um, even yesterday we had a, a fun little group chat with some other designers, Jordan and I. And it's interesting how, it, who got affected and who isn't. You know, what industries are thriving mm-hmm. and what industries are are completely on pause. And what we can do, you know, hopefully down the road to, to be situated a little bit better as partners and vendors to these people, you know, um, lot to learn from this for sure. And that's what we hope to explore. Yeah. But for now, for this episode, this episode is going to be a treat. I know. And it's in line <laughs> with everything, with everything that's going on because it stemmed from what's going on. Um, most of you know, I teach a class here at Cal State Northridge in LA and I, I was reaching out to a lot of folks to kind of guest appear in my class now that we're taking it virtual and being on Zoom. And I don't know if I told you how this happened yet, Jordan, but it happened via the magic of Twitter. I I literally was on one night and we had a few students on a call. And one of my students saw that uh, Michael Beirut from Pentagram had posted something about being in a in a class Zoom that night and how much he enjoyed it. And literally tweeted to him at that moment saying, we'll love to have you in. Two of my students who were on the call chimed in and both said, Hey, yeah, that would be great. And within 10 minutes, I had a message in my email from Michael saying he would love to come on board and join. So dude, so awesome. Isn't that great? <laughs> like this yeah. is this, this was um, a perfect example of something that I, I read on probably like day two of this quarantine thing was for any young designer now is the perfect time to get out there and email, text, tweet, to someone that you really like, someone you follow, someone you would love to hear some advice from. And there it was, uh, got the top dog in our industry to basically come on board. Yeah, Pentagram is no joke. Yeah, they do some amazing stuff. And he's had some amazing talks. There was one uh, about, about like the primitive power logos that he did. It's a video that I saw and it's phenomenal. I mean, it's super inspiring stuff. So I haven't listened to this yet, so I'm really excited to actually dig in. This is like brand new. Nick and I just talked about this yesterday, and we wanted to put it out here because, you know, I think it's worth hearing. Yeah, uh, and, it, and it works better as a as an audio. We did. Yeah. It's on my YouTube thing, but um, please understand, too, it was produced or uh, recorded via Zoom, so it's not this typical amazing sexy voice that both jo- Jordan and I have with our amazing <laughs> microphones. <laughs> um. Also, Nick, you know, Nick, as he mentioned, is doing all these, he teaches and he's doing all these online classes right now. Maybe you should plug that YouTube channel because there's some really cool stuff there. Yeah. You guys look up CSUN at uh, CSUN. 
uh, Saga, S-A-G-A. So it's CSUN Saga on a YouTube channel. Uh, we've been putting every one of my classes on there. Um, and I'm bringing in some really big names. Uh, Jordan's going to try to join us next week. And it's, it's fun. I, 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 I'm sure most of you, if you are in school right now, you know that this time has completely changed. And for me, it really stinks because we were, we were in a groove, man. My, my class is just slaying it. And to go not in person anymore and be virtual, I wanted to take full advantage of this. So I'm bringing in a guest each time and then we're just sharing it on YouTube. And it's, it's been a blast. Very educational, very fun. If you need a break in your day, chill out, listen to it. Um, the Beirut one is on there as well, but we wanted to give it to you as an audio because it's really, that's what it is. It's a great conversation. I asked him a ton of questions regarding what's currently going on right now, how, how, uh, Pentagram has kind of reacted to this, how him and his team are working basically, you know, all in isolation and tips for you guys. Like what, how do you come out of this thing ahead? What can you do to turn the story and say, I'm going to be a better designer. I'm going to be a better communicator. I'm going to be a better uh, possible employee, you know, once you graduate or once you're out there in the job market. So that's what we talked about for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I don't need any more introduction. I'm stoked, man. I'm actually going to, I'm going to listen to this, uh, I guess right now. There you go. <laughs> Let, let's sit back and relax and enjoy our interview with Michael Beirut. Faces. I see a lot of new faces. Perfect. Everybody say hello to Michael Beirut. He is, I'm sure you can see him there. If you want to unplug or unmute and give him a round of applause for joining us today. Yeah. There it is. The Zoom hello. clap. Oh, thank you. <laughs> awesome. So we are about to start. Uh, thank you guys all for making the time today. Uh, we have a lot of faculty on board. We have a lot of alumni. We have friends and, and, and family aboard here as well, which is really, really cool. Um, the whole point of this was uh, Michael reached out and saw that on Twitter, he was telling us that um, he had uh, recently done a few Zoom things with in-class uh, meetings last week, and we wanted to take full advantage of that. And um, so reached out to him on Twitter, and with the help of a few students, he joined us in uh, and sent us an email immediately. So first of all, thank you again, man, for, for doing that. We really appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be there with you all virtually. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, he needs no introduction, but I'll give you just the, the brief kind of thing here. We, we were so excited to, one, get you to join in, talk a little bit about design. We can geek out about this a lot today. I hope it's a good kind of, uh, you know, release for everybody as well. But got a few questions I want to just start off with, first of all. Um, looking for your help, your help and kind of uh, advice as we kind of navigate through here. How many of you, just by raise of hand that I can see, are graduating seniors at this point or ready to graduate? Perfect, perfect. So that's the whole point, Michael. We'd love to kind of talk a little bit about how these, these students can take advantage of this situation, turn it around to a really good positive, you know, and hopefully gain some insight from you and everything you've learned over the years. So you ready to go? All right, perfect. First of all, I think we just wanted, without we'd ask, how are you, your family, your colleagues, everybody doing at this point uh, over the last week or two? Um, we're doing good. Pentagram, I, the, I work in an office that has 100 plus people um, right in the middle of Manhattan. Um, 
most, I'd say, I'd say probably the majority of the, uh, of the staff, obviously most of us live in the general metropolitan New York area. I'd say a lot of the designers live in, uh, Brooklyn and Queens, uh, uh, which are, uh, in the heart of where the virus is really taking a severe toll right now. We closed the office, um, effectively, um, uh, a little bit, we've had three full weeks of, uh, so I think the three weeks ago today effectively was the first day that we were all started working from home yeah. and we've been shutting down the week leading up into that. So we've sort of had about a solid month of disruption so far. Um, and I'm happy to say that, um, uh, there've been a few people reported, uh, who've reported sim- symptoms, but, uh, uh, no current staff has been hospitalized. Everyone is sort of hanging in there. Um, I live up north of the city in a suburb called Terrytown, which is along the Hudson River. Uh, so I'm I'm fortunate. I have um, uh, uh, not a not a mansion by a long shot, but a proper house with a front door and a back door, <laughs> and a, I can walk out and be on a path along the Hudson River, which is lovely. Um, I'm married to. I've been married for. 40 years this year to a woman who is not only an extremely good, enthusiastic cook who tends to stress cook <laughs> as, ther- as therapy, but she's also literally a psychotherapist too. And uh, so she's in a way the ideal spouse to have at your disposal, someone who can make good meals and sort of understands how to tend to your emotional well-being and mental well-being, although she points out to me constantly that she is not my therapist and I need to, <laughs> if I want a therapist, I should call my own therapist, not try to get free help at home. Uh, so um, so I'm, there's a, in, I've got three kids, all of whom are grown, and uh, uh, one is in Brooklyn, one's up in the New Jersey suburbs, and other one's in graduate school out in Colorado. All of them are fine, too, Good. so... Um, so far so good. We've been really, we, I I will say that in New York, we in general have taken this seriously and in our office took it really seriously. And, uh, uh, um, you know, we're doing everything we can both to stay safe and to, you know, kind of, uh, not add to the burden, the substantial burden that's being faced by healthcare workers and, uh, other public officials, first responders, all the people who are really on the front line of this thing. And so, um, uh, it's that said it's, I miss being with people. I'm I'm at the stage and maybe some of you are now where you see a television show where people are like shaking hands or like at a party and dancing with each other or just in a crowd and you're thinking, (laughs) are they crazy? Why are they doing that? Then of course it was, it was filmed, you know, more than, a month and a half ago, that's how it used to be, right? So yeah, it's 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 weird what it does to your head. But it's uh, uh, the only consolation is is that this is truly one of those rare things where we are literally all in it together. People with privilege can insulate themselves a little bit better than you know, and then there are people who have almost no resources to insulate themselves from what's happening. Yeah, but um, the. Uh, virus doesn't give a shit it will come and get you if 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 it's your time and so um that's always been true we're all mortals but this all brings it home with a vengeance i think yeah for sure i i so, hey we'll start on that note as opposed yeah. to end on that exactly note, so. it only gets up, uphill from <laughs> yeah, here exactly yeah <laughs> and 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 you know a good segue into my next question was uh as you guys have transitioned into this 
kind of new virtual world. What has surprised you or what things have you learned are really, really kind of unique in how we've switched to being so virtual? Nick, that's a good question. Thank you. Um, one thing that surprised me was that um, um, how, um, how productive I, – I, I, I've been surprised, and I, I just was talking to uh, one of my clients, and he agreed. It's a little bit remarkable how productive you can be using the sort of online tools that we have today. Um, you know, and Zoom is one of them and, uh, you know, whatever kind of uh, group kind of meeting tools you have or things like Slack or, you know, email text, all stuff like that. Things that, um, you know, have, you know, have both been taken for granted. And I have to admit, I was one of those people who sure. was never a fan of, you know, of, um, of this sort of meeting if I had an option to actually be in a room with someone. I always much preferred the latter. And, um, and, and I think that um, there's a kind of focus you get when everyone is sort of in the same space on the same screen. Um, and, um, you know, I've got a couple of people on my team particularly who I think can really work through a session or in a really fluent way and pull up material and sort of like, uh, uh, we've been able to get some work done really, you know, really quickly. And of course, I think it's also been observed people who, people who are accustomed to working from home sort of will say that, um, people who go into an office, particularly if they have any sort of commute to get to that office, you know, a lot of times we'll only get four and a half hours worth of work done in an eight hour day anyway, because they're spending some of the time getting there, some of the time getting back, some of the time walking around and getting a cup of coffee or kind of like having small talk or doing all the stuff you do in between your actual work. Um, and that's true. On the other hand, all those things I described, not the commute necessarily, but the cup of coffee and the small talk are what makes life worth living to a certain yeah. degree, you know, and what makes um, the work that we do as designers, you know, um, I find uniquely satisfying that it's not, and for the most part, uh, at least my, the work I've done has never been an isolated experience. It's never been just me going sure. away somewhere and trying to be creative alone in a room. It's always been the give and take with other people with, you know, when I was younger with my boss or superiors and, you know, then with my peers and now with uh, my partners and with my team and with my clients and with all the other people I encounter. And I really, I value that. And, uh, yeah. and to the degree that um, uh, the ability to kind of uh, get in touch with someone pretty quickly these days <laughs> is, uh, and, and knowing that no one is sort of, you know, out or doing anything. Uh, you, know, you, don't have any, you don't have any plans this weekend. <laughs> no, no one's got any plans to do anything. Um, you know, it, it actually has changed things a little bit too. And it's, and it's one of the silver linings, I think, that some of the graduating seniors may, um, may kind of look for as they sort of look out into this stormy world as it appears today on Friday, the third yeah. of April. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I saw someone post something just in the first few days of this whole situation. Like now is the perfect time for any young designer to reach out to someone they admire yeah. or they look up to. Um, and we've been seeing that happening and we've been seeing great success stories with that as well, which is great. Um, one person I, I reached out to and I've been talking to a few folks at some of the other colleges and uh, someone named uh, Sarah Farr, she had this great thing and she wrote, these students are entering the workforce 
during a very, very unique time in history. And I figured, is this a way we can flip that story? And, and instead of make it extra scary, how do we yeah. turn it into something super, super productive and, and something they can thrive in? What do you think is the advice you'd give them as they're navigating through here to take advantage of this situation and what design can do there? Um, well, there, there's a, here's a couple of things, um, uh, that I've been thinking one, um, you know, I graduated from design school in June of 1980, you know, what's that? Uh, I, let's do the math. Is that like, uh, uh <laughs> you're talking to a bunch of creatives. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not, it sounds like 40 years ago to me, right? Everybody and, quickly uh, opens up their calculator uh, yeah, app. That would be 40. So, uh, you know, uh, 2020 minus 1980, I believe is 40 years, right? There you go. And so a long time has passed since then, but I can remember so clearly what that was like. Uh, and thank you, Rebecca and Colby. You got it 40. Uh, <laughs> the prize there. Um, um, and I remember what it was like to, um, um, to sort of be leaving an experience that for me had been all consuming. I loved going to, I love studying design. I love being in school. And, um, and I, you know, was going into, I was going to move from where I, where I went to school in Cincinnati, Ohio to New York city. Um, I was fortunate that I had unusually, cause this is not true for most of my peers, but I've already kind of managed to line up a job by means I can tell you in a moment. But still, it was like a, it was a leap into the unknown, and it always is. It is in good times, it is in bad times, and um, and it's exciting, and it's it's an it's an adventure. And I think that um, uh, one of the things that makes it most exciting is the fact that um, you're able to take the framework that you've developed over the last uh, few years at some place. Um, you know, like uh, California, like like CSUN, or wherever you are, and um, do you call it CSUN? You call it CSUN. We call it CSUN. Yeah, CSUN. It's somewhere like CSUN or or wherever you are. It sounds and, more. Um, it sounds so much more optimistic in Southern yeah, California. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> I'm, and I'm sure it's. I'm. I'm. Believe me, I'm positive. It's more optimistic than Eddie <laughs> would have been. Um, but um. Uh, but I think the um. Uh, you know, you sort of have a perspective which is um. Uh, your professors and the assignments you've done have made it as broad and interesting as possible. But, you know, the real world affords all its own sort of surprises and experiences. And they're inevitably going to be different and broader than what you encountered. And if you can kind of carry the same enthusiasm and curiosity out into that journey that you had in school, um, every single, you know, thing, everything you do is going to have um, an opportunity to to think like a designer, to react like a designer, to kind of prove yourself as a designer, and to um, um, you know learn about design as it's in the real world. You know how do you, you know how do you, how do you decide where you want to work and what you want to do? How do you decide um, uh, you know once you start getting an idea about that? How do you strategize about you know? 
getting your foot in the door, so to speak, at mm -hmm. a place you're interested in. And in some ways, not everything's a design problem, but if you're a designer, you can make those things design problems to a certain degree. Yeah. Uh, design problems that have interesting solutions, the thinking of which and the uh, solving of which can be uh, a pleasure and an experience in and of themselves, right? So I think um, it's, it's always hard. It was hard in June 1980. My lovely wife, the now um, psychotherapist, had an MBA and what no one what's easy to remember, forget now is that the, the country was in a really crummy recession in summer 1980. And she looked for a job without success for uh, six months. And this is how you look for a job in June, 1980. Um, children. Uh, <laughs> you, um, Dorothy, my lovely wife, uh, was trying to get a job either at an ad agency as an account executive or in the marketing department of a, um, you know, of a corporation, right? Um, she would go to the library in, in New York and go to find books that had addresses and names of people who worked at places like ad agencies and, um, and corporations. Uh, because we were just two dumb kids from Ohio, well, I'll speak for myself, I was a dumb kid from Ohio and she was a bright <laughs> young woman from Ohio, but we did not arrive in New York with a whole bunch of contacts and a whole bunch of uh, uh, a big network of supporters, right? And, um, and like in those days, you know, having gone to an East Coast school and having been plugged into a network of supportive people, was actually, that's when it really counted for something, you know, having, if dad could call up and put in a call to Jay, the, the, you know, his friend from prep school, Jay Walter Thompson, and kind of get you an interview, boy, that was a lot easier than what Dorothy was doing. Going to the library, copying out in longhand these names and addresses, coming back to our tiny squalid apartment, sitting at a electric typewriter, typing um, letters one at a time on a nap by 11 pieces of paper, folding those pieces of paper into thirds and putting them in envelopes upon which you would also type the address and the recipient of the uh, letter, getting a stamp, licking the stamp, affixing that to the envelope, then taking that out, putting it in a mailbox, and then waiting to see if that person would arrive. And she did that like more than a hundred times. There were like a hundred plus letters went out, each one individually typed, each one with a stamp, each one in a mailbox, each one sent like a message in a bottle to an unknowing, uncaring void. <laughs> with fingers um, crossed. <laughs> yeah, to people who might or, might or might not be there, to places about which she really could barely know anything. Um, you know, say you were curious about the work that J. Walter Thompson did, you know. There might be some books in the library that had information about J. Walter Thompson. There might be... Um, uh, you know, maybe your library subscribed to Advertising Age or Ad Week magazine, in which case you could like read them to kind of get up to speed. But Jesus, for the most part, you were kind of just listening for the tiniest little signals that were coming in through amidst a bunch of static. Now, luckily, just like now, everyone was in the same boat, except, I realize now, except for those kids who <laughs> went to Princeton and Harvard and Yale and had dads who uh, had friends from prep school. Um, uh, but I mean, it was just, it was amazing how, uh, how, how, how brittle and hard and cold the world was back then, if you were a young person in an unfamiliar world. Now, um, everyone has access to so much information. And if you 
let your curiosity kind of guide you to things that you're enthusiastic about that you find exciting and interesting and appealing. And you kind of use that as the first thing that guides you in your, uh, you know, in your quest to kind of find your future in design. That's actually already so much more than people had in, um, uh, in 1980, or as Paula DeMarco says, in 1991, or, you know, until really the invention of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the internet, there was like no way to communicate, no way to, um, uh, uh, no way to kind of like research these things. And most importantly, no way to kind of make yourself be known in that world, right? Yeah. I mean, I had a, you know, a big ass physical portfolio, one, that I could take and show to someone or more likely in New York, drop it off in their studio and assume that someone might look at it overnight before I picked it up 24 hours later. And maybe they might leave a note in it or maybe not. And, um, and, you know, it, it was, you know, now, uh, uh, you know, when there's nothing more exciting for me now when we have a chance to hire someone new for our team, or even when we have a chance to bring in an intern, just to sort of like see, um, the kinds of work that people have available to look at online to kind of get a sense of what their personalities are to, um, you know, we've had, we've done interviews with potential candidates using exactly this sort of technology using zoom or Skype or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's just, as, it's just completely different. And none of those things have changed. You know, I mean, what's changed is that the whole world is kind of holding its breath trying to figure out, you know, what's going to happen next week or what's going to happen next month. But this can only go on for so long, you know, and eventually when we come out the other side, people will sort of start to figure out, okay, now what, where do we go from here? And, um, um, and in a way, you know, setting, you know, God having put his finger on the reset button for the whole world and um, kind of turned it off and turned it on again, you know, sometimes I can fix a lot of bugs and sometimes that can kind of, you know, I mean, things can get messed up pretty bad too. Yeah. Um, but I still think it's, um, it's in a way, um, uh, there's something about the moment, which is, um, the tools that we've been given to navigate the moment are just, uh, something that's easy to take for granted, particularly if you've known them your whole life. But I'd encourage all of you to kind of appreciate the fact that, uh, that we can have this conversation, for instance, that you can ask me a question that you could really, as, uh, as Nick said, you could, you know, you could ask almost anyone a question at this moment and be more likely than not to get an answer, you know, than yeah. if you asked them this, this question a month ago, you know? Yeah. Would there be anything you'd be doing different uh, if you were in their shoes at this point? So most of our students, and I'm assuming some of the others that <clears throat> joined us today are, probably right in the middle of putting their first professional portfolio together. And uh, we really stress, you know, case studies and objective and showing your strategy yeah. and your process. So in, when you're looking at these folks coming in and considering the, the transition time we're in, uh, what would you be doing differently to help yourself stand out? Um, I think, well for, well, for one thing, I'll, I'll preface this with a, with a bit of a caveat that I almost always use. Um, in my job today, I have, uh, the way Pentagram is structured, it's, uh, it's like a partnership where each of the partners, and there are 25 partners around the world, each of us sort of runs like a small office within the overall, a small studio within the overall firm, basically. Yeah. And so I have a dozen people on my team and I sit 
you know, alongside uh, my other nine partners in New York, um, Abbott Miller and uh, Matt Willer, Matt Willie, Paula Scher, Eddie Opara, um, Emily Oberman, Luke Heyman, Natasha Jen, Michael Garricky. Um, that doesn't sound like 10, but I must be <laughs> leaving someone out. Okay. But at any rate, um, uh, there's a bunch of us who all sit there. Right. And, um, one thing I've noticed is when we're talking about our designers and we're talking about, Hey, I need some, you know, I'm hiring, I'm looking for someone to help me with this. Um, all of us tend to look for different things in the designers we hire. And um, it's made me being conscious of that and sort of seeing it firsthand, realizing that um, um, a designer that I'm super enthusiastic about and who works really well on my team might not work as well on Paula Scher's team or gotcha. Emily Oberman's team. One of, you know, uh, Abbott Miller's designers might not work as well on my team. It's um, um, each of us has really different things we look for and things that we would um, uh, um, name as important things in a portfolio that we were, that we were looking for. Um, so, so I don't think there's any right way to kind of put together a portfolio to look for a job. I think there are some people out there that will respond really positively to seeing process or strategy. There are other people who just want to, even in my, even in my office, among my partners or some that w like that, there are others that just like want to see work and just kind of like, you know, cut to the chase. There's some people who, um, really like to see things that look very realistic. There are other people who welcome the opportunity to see personal work that looks like it might be hard to apply in a commercial setting, but still, sure is exciting and interesting. And so the only guy that I think is really reliable and it's hard information to get if you're in your early 20s, it's a hard, hard advice to get and to interpret if you're in your early 20s. It would have been hard for me to interpret in my early 20s um, is just to somehow try to be yourself, just project yeah. who you are. What, I mean, what do you find interesting? What parts of school have you found exciting? What do you, um, which of your projects do you think are the ones that you're the most proud of that you found, um, you know, that you, that you found kind of not just things that you had to kind of execute step by step by step, ta-da, I'm done, but things that were generative where you kind of kept getting more and more ideas as you were doing them. You know, those are the things, that's what you really care about. And, yeah. um, and it sort of is, I think it actually is a lifelong quest to actually really find your voice as a designer and the best designers and artists are people who constantly keep reengaging with that, with that, uh, 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 you know, with that search, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. if you get up to the level of people like Picasso and you sort of see a retrospective of his work and you realize that he had a million, you know, he had multiple times over the course of his career, we could have said, okay, I got, you know, cubism, I got this down. I'm just going to milk this for all it's worth and carry this through to the end, right? Instead, you, you just saw him sort of like think, okay, that's interesting. Now what can I do? Now what can I do? Now what can I do? There, there aren't that many. There, I mean, there are some people like that. But then for every Picasso, there's a, um, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's someone like, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Joseph Albers or, uh, or, you know, just any designer who, 
any designer artist who sort of like has something that's really passionately interesting to them and they just sort of burrow in and just kind of want to get exactly that point of view exactly right. So different critics and, and people have written about those two personalities, uh, which I think in each one of us, if we're creative, are somehow in balance. You know, there's that thing you love to do that threatens to become a, a rut. There's yeah. that thing you it's unfamiliar to you that if you try it is probably going to suck because you don't know how to do it right and it's not your normal handwriting <laughs> and i think switching back and forth between those two things is actually how you move forward and change as a creative person and so i i just encourage people to just be yourself as much as possible don't try to uh um you know i think imitating people is okay i mean that's how i i started out imitating people and i'm a good i i'm good at it um, and in a way it impeded my ability to kind of find my own voice to a certain degree, the ease at which I could kind of mimic other people's. Um, but I think, uh, um, you know, there's that. And there's also one last piece of advice I'll give before we throw out the questions is, uh, um, uh, two pieces of contradictory advice. One, um, like do lots of work. Just if you like doing design, do lots of design and just do it not because it's homework and not because it's practice, but just because it's fun. If you don't think it's fun to do it, don't do it. And maybe, <laughs> maybe, think about, yeah, maybe think about <laughs> doing something else altogether. Right. Um, and so just, just do it a lot. Just figure out a way to be, to be productive. I found that I, when I look back at some early work I did, I was so unbelievably bad. And I realize now that the reason I got good was just because I kept practicing. If you haven't mm -hmm. seen it yet, there's a famous YouTube clip of the um, uh, the podcaster and radio uh, star Ira Glass, who is the who has a show called This American Life. Mm -hmm. He talks about um, uh, I think it's about he calls it taste in the creative process, and he actually talks about something that I've never heard anyone describe quite this way. But he says. The reason that you got into creative work is because you've seen things that you loved and they excited you and you thought, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. And then you try to do it and then you look at what you did and you realize there's this huge gap between the thing you did and the thing that excited you. And he says that's because you have taste, right? You have yeah. taste. That's what got you into this, right? And he said the thing that is so frustrating to people is that if you have taste, if you're excited by good creative work, um, inevitably, the work that you do is going to lo not look like that in the same way. And thank you, uh, 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 Lee Sean Huang, for putting that link up there. I think that's it. Yeah, Perfect. it's. Um, um, but it's a. Um, um, this and he says that gap is for one thing. If you don't see that gap, it's because you're a hack. It's because you you don't have any talent and you've done something. There's what is that syndrome called where you're. Uh, where you're, it's, 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 got, it's got a name and it's sort of like people who are stupid but don't know they're stupid and they think they're smart. It's applied to politicians frequently. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, I think. It's actually, <laughs> yeah. it's actually the name, Dunning-Kruger effect. So there are, I think there's a corollary in the creative world too where people who, you know, people who just, you know, 
love to sing and don't realize that they're tone deaf and they have a terrible voice. You see them in the early stages of American Idol frequently, right? <laughs> and likewise, I think there are some people who are like that in, the, in any creative field. But if you're not like that, what you'll see and what you'll be frustrated by and even scared a little bit by is the gap between what you're able to do and what you want to do. And, the, and Ira Glass says very explicitly, the only thing you can do is fight through that. You just have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And amusingly in this clip, he plays something that he recorded seven years when he had been, you know, from his early days. And he said, I'd already been an NPR reporter for seven years when I recorded this and listen how terrible it is. And he said, <laughs> the only way I got beyond that was by, you know, just pushing and pushing and practicing and practicing and practicing. So doing a lot of work is actually how you get good at that work. And, you know, there's, you know, there's that uh, Malcolm Gladwell essay about whatever it is, you know, 100,000 hours or how many hours it took anyone to get good at what they did. And he came up with a rule that basically is his retort to people claiming that in born, in that, that being born with talent is the differentiator. He says, no, it's the ability to just relentlessly practice yeah. your skill. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Narek. 10,000 hours. That's what he says, right? Uh, the the, the 10,000 hour rule. And he sort of has worked it out where he calculated the Beatles had played for 10,000 hours in places like Hamburg, Germany, before they actually became the Beatles. And it was all that practice they did. And it's in Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Thanks a lot. You know, um, also another reason I like Zoom. <laughs> Perfect, right? <laughs> because for one thing, I know everyone's name because uh, you're wearing name tags. And secondly, um, links. I'm, like, you, yeah, you're putting <laughs> links and prompts. Every time I forget something, you know, I, um, it just pops up on the screen and I seem like a genius, but I will credit <laughs> my, uh, the people whispering the cues from off stage. Thank you for that. That is the, one of the best little <laughs> you know, add-ons for it as well. Shockingly I'm, great. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to switch over. I think we got a, a bunch of great ones coming in. And the first Please one do. came in from one of my students, William. William, you want to chime in and uh, ask your question? Hi, uh, thank you for meeting with us. Uh, so my question is, you know, like now that we're eating into this um, post-COVID-19 world um, that we all don't know what to look like, what do you suspect, like uh, industry-wise, like where design will go and what industries will probably flourish? Um, well, I think I'm like everyone else where, like I keep, I keep getting struck by people just attempting to you know, predict, you know, where, you know, where these trends, you know, where things are going based on nothing at all. This is all just so unprecedented that it's hard to figure out what will happen coming out of this. Uh, um, I think that, um, uh, you know, there, I mean, sort of, there, I think a lot of different things may, may happen I don't know. I don't, I'm afraid of being one of these kind of like people making predictions just, uh, you know, out of their ass. So forgive me for that. But <laughs> let's say, um, uh, um, you know, think about all the things that might happen. Right. Um, so obviously, um, you know, you know, tools that help people communicate remotely, even when, um, you know, even if social distancing six months from now is just a distant memory and everyone is just kind of like hugging each other and shaking each other's hands and, uh, and jamming themselves into bars and restaurants and nightclubs and performance venues and stuff like that. I still think that, um, 
you know, having had the experience of, of communicating this way at all these different levels as socially and, uh, um, uh, in a business context in a social context in a romantic context for people, uh, people who are separated from loved ones. I think that they're, you know, sort of, um, this is a category of design, you know, that, that really has never been tested before to this degree. And I think that there's probably technologically a whole bunch of interesting things that may emerge from, you know, as we move from uh, uh, the age of letter writing uh, back in my wife in 1980, and then if you were lucky, someone would call you on the phone that was plugged into the wall in your apartment. And if you were rich, you can get an answering machine, which I don't think had been invented as I recall in 1980 either. But like, you know, then you have a phone in your pocket, then you have a phone you can look at pictures on as people are talking to you. I mean, um, and think about each one of those things is actually also a different design context. So I bet there's something interesting that could happen there. So the absolute other end of the scale is think about how, um, how important physical things have become to us all. You know, think about, as I look across, you know, think about your shirt or your wallpaper, William. You know, think about, uh, you know, how you've arrayed those pictures behind you on the wall, for instance. You know, um, uh, you know, as I, you know, all of a sudden the objects that we surround ourselves with, the environment that we live in, you know, has become much more significant to us in the past few weeks as well, right? And, um, you know, one of the things I've been doing on, I just decided this week to do it just for fun is um, on my Instagram account, I started every morning just taking one of the books from my library back there and taking a picture of the cover and some of my favorite spreads from it and, um, and just sort of describing why it's an important book and why, well, why it's important to me as a book. And um, I've been really surprised. These are the most uh, popular posts I've ever done on Instagram. Wow. Right? Interesting. And, right? and these are books from like 1953, from 1964. And the pictures I take of them, I just like take them up, I take them to our living room and put them on a coffee table in the morning where I think the light is sort of nice and just take a picture of them there, you know, as best I can holding a, you know, holding my uh, iPhone as steady as possible. And then I do a little bit of research just to make sure I know the context of the book. And I just put it out there and, um, uh, and you can sort of, and these are like old, you know, I'm, I'm not a bibliophile. So some of these books are banged up looking and dog-eared looking. And you can tell that people are responding, you know, to just the tangibility of these objects, right? And that makes me suspect that, you know, if you're a graphic designer and you care about interactivity and you care about, you know, um, you know, uh, digital communication and things like that, there are all kinds of opportunities that have to do with the context that all of us are in right now. But at the same time, I think if you're a, a book designer, there is going to be a role for tangible things, for books that actually, you know, yeah. are things that people can hold in their hand and not look at remotely, not like look at in the, uh, uh, you know, you know, with everything kind of like lodged in one pixel deep screen, but something that actually you can smell and touch that has weight, that has volume, a volume that has volume, you know, I think that's a significant too. So that those yeah. sort of are, are two ends of a fairly vast spectrum. And I think that, you know, potentially things will emerge everywhere in between that as well. And then finally, 
The other thing I'd kind of urge you all to pay attention to, um, you know, at this moment is how important storytelling is and um, uh, what, what I'll call like the narrative voice. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, so, I mean, think about it. what a terrifying moment it is where it's truly a moment where the stakes couldn't be higher. It's about life and death, right? And, you know, we've all been through different kinds of inconveniences before, but nothing like this, right? And each of us, I bet, can think of, you know, a, a video that was forwarded to us or a, you know, a, a Twitter thread or a Facebook post where someone was describing, you know, the, the death, you know, their experience with a loved one having and losing perhaps a loved one to COVID-19. The testimony from, um, you know, from a nurse or a doctor about what it's like to be in a hospital, um, you know, the, um, you know, the, you know, the pleas that might come from someone who feels that there's, they're trapped somewhere without the resources to face this down. You know, those are all individual stories. And I think, um, you know, what's, what, what moves us as, uh, as human beings are those stories. And I think so many of the things that have excited me about design about being a graphic designer specifically is that graphic designers get to participate in the telling of those stories. You know, the designers of the books I'm describing, you know, every morning that I lay down on my coffee table and take pictures of, you know, each one of those was motivated because someone decided that there was something they wanted to communicate to the world. Right. And they had a, 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 uh, a hunger to do that and they somehow got together the resources to do that and you know in the case of these books you know we have evidence of that you know uh 75 years later in some cases 50 years later you know 60 years later um likewise with um uh with those fleeting things you see online that i just described describe that are talking about uh um the world we're in today each one of those needs could benefit ultimately from the interpretation that you guys as storytellers, as people who understand how to visualize information, how to visualize a narrative. I mean, think about, you know, the firsthand experience we're all having with that right now. I think it's, I think that's actually really unique to this particular moment. And I think, you know, I, I didn't live through, um, you know, despite the fact I look old as hell, I wasn't alive during the second world war. You know, I, you know, I was, uh, uh, I, I was too young for Vietnam. I, you know, sort of like, you know, this is probably the, uh, in it, you know, like a lot of baby boomers, we've skated through pretty, uh, 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 you know, without getting our hair must. And this somehow has been, um, uh, something that, uh, um, has been, you know, the drama of one of the dramas of my lifetime. And certainly, uh, for all of us, it is. And I think the, the way it'll be remembered afterwards and the way it's communicated in the moment are both really important too. So I think a long way to answer your question, William, I think there's lots of really interesting lessons and um, lots of different territories that this opens up for what design can contribute to the world. And you guys will be in a perfect, you know, cause you, just like it's easier to learn a, uh, a new language when you're young and much harder when you're older. I think that you guys are, in a position to take this on as bruising as it is and as painful as it is. And, um, it'll shape you as inevitably it'll shape you as designers. I mean, yeah. you don't have a say in that. Um, uh, and I think the trick is, you know, how can you, uh, 
use your talent and your imagination, your creativity to transform it into something lasting that'll go beyond this crisis and shape the way you think about your own work and design, what design can do in general going forward. Yeah. I, you, there's so many great examples of your, your example there of storytelling. And I think we're, yeah. you could turn the TV on and see yeah. how fast companies and brands had to change their messaging in there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and some of them are doing it so eloquently and it, I don't know. It's, there's certain things about it that just are so inspiring to see good creative coming out of this situation. Yeah. So I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that as that one area as designers, I always think copy storytelling being involved in that, that situation is so crucial in getting the strategy and the communication really clear. So it makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, next question, speaking of tangible things and books and things like that, I want to go to Michael. You had a question on sketchbooks, sketching, Go for it, man. Awesome. Michael, uh, big, big fan. Um, Thank you. So one thing I was curious about is do you keep a personal or work sketchbook, um, you know, with you and how do they differ and, and what kind of style do you keep it in? Um, uh, I'm going to get up and walk over a couple of feet to get the, what I, what I have. Okay. Stand by. Awesome. You Thank got you. it. You got it. <clears throat> Hey, Paul, if you see any good questions you want to throw my way to, if you're scanning through them, let me know. And, and as well as faculty as well, if there's anything specifically, uh, uh, send me a, a note there as well. Hi, sorry. So um, uh, back in the early 80s, in about 1982 or so, I, um, I went to, um, I decided to, I, I, I sort of, I realized I, from school, from going to lectures and things, I realized that I sort of was better remembering stuff if I wrote it down somewhere. So I uh, um, got, I probably out of the supply closet at Vignelli Associates, I got one of these uh, notebooks with that kind of pattern on it. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I started, um, and I just opened it up and I just started taking notes at meetings. And then I started inevitably as one does and as you guys would, kind of doing sketches for design work in the in the notebooks too and then a lot of people have different ways of doing this I happen to be I have some aspects of my personality my wife would say all aspects of my personality have a little bit of the obsessive compulsive behind it <laughs> and um, I just I sort of became attached to having this these notebooks with me like everywhere I went uh, and so now I'm on notebook number 126 Wow is that right there? Um, and, um, oh, whoops, sorry. 127. <laughs> uh, 127. Yeah, 127. Okay. <laughs> and, um, uh, and basically in these notebooks, um, uh, on, the, um, on the front page, I have my name and address, and if lost, please return, and the date that I started. And I've lost two of them over the time, one I left in a bathroom at a big corporate headquarters I was at for a client. The other one I, left, I left in a, um, in a, no, I left, I left somewhere in a, at one of my clients and they never found it. The other one I left in a bathroom at Heathrow airport in London, sadly. Um, and then, um, so, so like what I have in these notebooks is like, there's stuff, I don't know if you can see it, but there's stuff you can see like on the left where these are notes that I made interviewing a client at the San Diego zoo where we just redesigned their identity. And so it's notes from the new director there and what he 
wanted. And, um, and then over there on the right is a quick sketch I did for the cover of a redesign we're doing for the, uh, the Yale Review, which is Yale University's literary magazine. So a lot of times these sketches I do are just sort of crummy and not that great. I'm going to try to find one that looks like a proper designer did it. <laughs> uh, uh, and, um, but, but basically all of these things just have, you know, they tend to have a lot of writing in them. I'm, I'm ashamed to say more writing than drawings, let's say. Uh, and I don't doodle in them. I'm kind of careful about that. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll just be trying to just work out a, uh, you know, this is, we don't do that many printed brochures anymore, but that's just trying to work out the sequence of pages and a fairly complicated little print thing we were doing for a client. It's trying to figure out the, the, the sequence of both information and, uh, uh, and uh, the pagination of it. Um, so, so uh, uh, <laughs> these are so bad. These are, there's nothing because they're so not ready for prime time. Stand by though. Hang on. <laughs> get, get something that doesn't suck. Hang on. Uh, I mean, usually the ones that actually work out best for me sometimes is when I'm. I do that thing one does now, where you um, uh, are uh, where I'm. I can tell some of these were done because I was on a, a Slack conversation with one of my designers and I, w I wasn't in the office and I just did a drawing and I said, maybe do something like this, but better. I do that a lot. Something like this, but better. Um, oh, so um, we were, uh, oh, I, I came so close. Oh, we, we were asked <laughs> to redesign the, uh, the, there's something called the commission on presidential debates, which, which runs the uh, the four debates that happen during a presidential election, the three that happen between the candidates for the president mm -hmm. and one that happens between the vice presidential candidates. And they have right now like something that looks very official with an eagle on it. They asked us to update it. And uh, um, I was doing sketches like this at one point. And we actually had this really nice one that is based on that one sort of where it's a C form and a D form with the, the P in the middle for, for presidential was a question mark. I don't know if you can see that. <laughs> but like, that looked like a mouth and that looked like a mouth and the question was in the middle. And that was sort of the runner up to the thing that they finally picked, um, uh, which doesn't look like that at all. But you'll, you know, you'll see that if, 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 if we succeed in having uh, – um, uh, those presidential debates at all. And so this is definitely a, a, uh, this one here is definitely a, a note that I sent to my, uh, designer Katie, where I'm, we're trying to make a logo out of Jay's making an ampersand. You can sort of see all of these details. Oh, yeah. This has to be longer. This has to be shorter. It's, it's, I often kind of sketch things that I think almost you know, like I'm famous that one time they, I was presented with a bunch of things that I seem to say all the time. And one of them is it worked in the sketch, like where I'll sort of like do something and work in the sketch. And then, uh, uh, I'll see it actually, they'll, they'll try to do it in real life and it'll just look terrible. And I'll say, well, what's the problem with that? And, uh, 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 and they'll say, well, you know, it doesn't actually line up that way. Oh, look, I still was beating it to death there. So. <laughs> you were going to make it happen somehow. Oh, yeah, it got closer and closer, <laughs> but it never made it work. Um, and so, and so, but at any rate, so these, I've got, you know, 127 of these, 125 of these in all. Uh, these, I carry the, the, the most recent one with me, which is this one. 
which is getting more of a workout now just because I really have to do a lot of, uh, you know, I have to sort of like draw page by page things for uh, presentations, let's say. Like, you know, this, this slide should show three uh, um, iPhones open to this page and I have to kind of call them out that way. And then there'll still be a lot of pages with tons of writing on them like that, right? So that's what I do. I don't, I occasionally, I've had a couple of bouts with doing um, uh, long-term sketching projects over, you know, one a day that I've done that too. And those are up there somewhere, I suppose. But the ones that actually get me through my life are these guys. And um, uh, I, I'm not necessarily, I, I really just, I, uh, I, every once in a while I've had moments in my life where I've started drawing from pleasure like I used to. I don't do enough of that actually. And um, occasionally um, some of these notes that I'm taking and some of these quick prompts that I'm giving my design team um, uh, uh, sort of don't, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of what just kind of, they sort of are like drawing, but basically they're more like note taking in a way. So um, um, all I know is that I just, if I'm kind of, if I walk into a room and I find that I can't find this notebook anywhere, I sort of like have to stop and find it before I can kind of sit down and focus myself, you know, so um, that's, that's become a little bit of a security blanket for me. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, All right. Uh, thanks, Michael. Glad you started showing some logo work because I think it'd be yeah. a, a good segue in our next one. Christine has a really good question. Christine, are you with us? You want to chime in and ask? Hi. There she is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you mentioned that as creatives that you know, finding your own personal style and your voice is something you constantly work at and it's a journey that's never finished. So could you tell us a little bit about your experience and your journey and do the, yeah, that's my question. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and mine has a couple of aspects to it that are kind of unique that I wouldn't actually recommend to people. Um, um, like, as I said, I was very lucky where I lined up a job before I came to New York and the job I lined up was to be an entry level, um, junior designer in, <coughs> excuse me, entry level junior designer in the studio of a design of a, a, a very well-known, uh, legendary designer named Massimo Vignelli who some of you, as a name, some of you might recognize, right? And, you know, it's funny, even sometimes now I try to reconstruct how I knew who he was based on, you know, in 1980. So, like, you couldn't Google him. There was no Google. Um, uh, in the um, – uh, it, it was just sort of a, um, uh, uh, a world that had um, – uh, I guess, you know, there was design that I liked out there, but so little of it was credited to people. But somehow I found out there was this guy, Massimo Vignelli. I knew he had designed the signs in the New York City subway and the logo for Bloomingdale's department store and a couple of other things. And then, um, and he was like one among many designers that I dropped off my portfolio with the, at the end of the summer before I started my senior year. And um, he saw, uh, by by stroke of luck, uh, I had dropped it off there. I didn't have a personal interview. I didn't drop it off for him to look at. I dropped it off because, note to young designers, um, a, a, a guy I knew um, uh, at one of my internships had been in a had been a classmate of one of Vignelli's designers at 
design school. And he said, oh, if you're in New York, look up this guy, Peter. I was in school with him. And um, indeed, I, uh, I gave him a call and he said, I, I, I don't have time to see you. This is 1980. And I guess we were busy back in 1982 uh, as well. And uh, so Peter said, I don't have time to see you. If you drop off your portfolio, I'm happy to... Um, I'm happy to take a look at it. So I dropped it off, and for whatever reason, I think um, uh, Peter showed it to Massimo Vignelli, and Massimo liked it. I know now specifically, I, I can imagine why he liked it, because I, you know, after I got to know him, I knew that I just happened to do, uh, uh, I happened to sketch in a very similar way that he did. I didn't know that at the time, but we happened to do sketches the same way. And then plus, I just think I had certain aspects of my sensibility were really similar to, uh, uh, to the way that Vignelli designed, but I didn't know that either. I, I just liked his work. And so I think my liking his work kind of had to do, you know, that had an effect on the kind of work that I ended up doing as a student, obviously. So we were kind of aligned somehow, but it wasn't calculated, it just was accidental. At any rate, he responded to my work when I went in to pick up my portfolio, I got a chance to meet him, uh, which was pretty rare. A lot of times the receptionist in one of these places just say, yeah, it's one of those portfolios there. And you'd pick your portfolio out of a pile of six, sadly, and go trudging away. In this case, they said, oh, wait a second. I think, uh, could you just take a seat? And then uh, um, it turned out that Mr. Vignelli wanted to come out and say hello. And so I was just stunned by that, of course. And uh, <laughs> uh, yet I, I had another year before I graduated and uh, I wrote them a letter and um, put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it and mailed it via the post office. I got a letter back from them saying that they didn't have any openings, but you know, between they would see what would happen, you know, as the, the year transpired. And it just so happened that, uh, one of the designers, uh, quit and they had an opening. So they made me a job offer that I had before I graduated. And I, I think I was the only person in my class that had a job before he graduated. Now it's not because I was the best designer, I think it was because I just was always out there kind of hustling a little bit, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, I was like, I, I, I was like dropping my portfolio off at the end of the summer of my junior year. Like why, you know, I mean, like, what was I looking for? You know, like, like I, I didn't, I still had a whole year of school to do, but I was in New York and I thought, hell, I, I just want to see what the lobbies of these office of these design firms look like, you know, and what shape their, the receptionist desk was and what stuff they had hanging on the wall. And I can remember all those things very clearly about Vignelli Associates uh, 40 years ago, to tell you the truth. But um, I ended up taking that job. Uh, if, if some of you know Massimo Vignelli's work and you know that he has a very, very strong style, he has like a, almost an, he had an ideology about design that involved uh, um, using only, you know, you know, everyone must only use five typefaces. He was a real, uh, you know, purist in terms of modernism. At the same time, he was a very warm and emotional um, Italian guy. You know, he's an uh, immigrant from Italy, had become naturalized as a citizen in America after practicing here for many years. But he and his wife, Layla, really ran it like a mom and pop place. I remember being told that my first day there. It's sort of like, it's, you know, I remember like one of my a guy who had been working there took me to get a, uh, a sandwich in an Italian sandwich shop and said, this place is pretty much just like the, like Vignelli associates. This couple runs the sandwich shop and they make you uh, <laughs> a mortadella sandwich and some provolone cheese. And, uh, 
it's um you know it's it's across the street and we're doing design work but it's like run by an italian couple and when you think of it that way it sort of clears things up a little bit and so it was very it was like very clean beautiful modernist design but being done with a lot of art behind it and i think my goal was to stay there for maybe 18 months and move on and have a different experience i ended up staying there for all for a little bit more than 10 years so you don't have that um, I don't think it's necessarily good for anyone to stay in their first job for 10 years unless you want to and I wanted to um, but um, it, it took me while I was there I sort of worked my way I, you know Vignelli style I found very easy to imitate actually and he was very flattered by having someone who was so enthusiastic about imitating his style, which he, he didn't think of it as, as his style. He thought of it as good design. And so he thought I was, because I could do his style, he thought I was a good designer. Um, and I was willing to kind of go along with that. Um, I, I also love designing. I learned so much just actually by, ha by trying to imitate his style, having him come over to me and say, no, no, no. Um, you want to have these things line up with that. Don't indent that there. Have this line up with that. And then this is just a little bit too big here. You should make this smaller so it's more, you know, so you learn these things just by, you know, if you've got a master teacher, even if, even if that person's not teaching you, if you're a musician and your apprentice, is, if your teacher is not playing the style or the kind of way that you ultimately want to play, you can learn so much just by having them say, no, no, do it this way, do it that way. You just just it just trains your fingers and your eyes and your mind to think a different way so I ended up being there for uh, 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 for like I said a decade and over that period I started kind of like discovering in myself as one would um, things that I was interested in like I was famous for you know taking on every single extra project you could take on I, I worked incessantly to a degree that I, again, I'm not sure I recommend anymore. I sort of, I used to be a real proponent for, you know, uh, working 18 hour days because that was how you got good. I know now, you know, I think about, um, you know, at least, uh, you know, you know, I have three kids who would have benefited from me working a little bit less in the office and me being home more. And I respect people that actually, realize that in the moment instead of realize that with regret and try to make up for it later in life as I have. And so again, staying in some place for 10 years, don't do, don't do what I did. Working 18 hour days, don't do what I did. Those aren't <laughs> the only paths to success. However, it's what, it is what I did. So uh, God help me. And um, uh, as I was doing those long days, a lot of times I just would do experimental work and in some cases did stuff that Massimo hated just hate it. And he could, and he sort of was like judgmental. I would, I did a poster for the AIGA New York chapter for an event and I used a uh, Franklin Gothic, a typeface that I assume some of you are familiar with and it's hardly a controversial typeface. And I remember him saying to me, what is this typeface? And I said, what is it? What, what, what is this? And I said, uh, Franklin Gothic. <laughs> why, why are you using that? And I said, I don't know. Just, just, for, you know, for fun. Uh, <laughs> Sharon observes it's very similar to Helvetica. <laughs> no, it isn't. Not if you're Massimo Vignelli. It's nowhere fucking like Helvetica. Trust me. Um, um, it is... Um, uh, Rule number one. A, yeah, it is a far cry from Helvetica. It's, a, uh, it's an American typeface that well predated Helvetica. And uh, 
uh, and actually, you know, doesn't have anywhere near the refinement of Helvetica, which is what I sort of liked about it. Has sort of had a personality to it that I just wanted to feel in my fingers a little bit. I remember him saying, "Why? why? And I, he he may have said, "Why don't you use Helvetica if you want something like that?" And I said, "I don't know. I don't like it." You know, and he just thought it was. Uh, uh, you know, that was sort of like not what his style was, but I would try these different things. And then eventually I sort of came to think, you know, um, if I'm ever going to find out what designer I am outside of, I really have to move out. And I, and I was really trusted by the Vanillas, had a great relationship with them. And, uh, it was very difficult to kind of finally quit, but I did. And, um, uh, I went right from there to being, um, probably at 33 years old, the youngest partner at Pentagram, certainly the newest partner at Pentagram. And, um, and again, it was sort of, it was interesting because I had lost my appetite for uh, having my own studio and being all by myself with my own name on the door. I liked being around different people. Uh, uh, I liked having a lot of activity around me. I liked having people who were designing things around me that I could look at that had nothing to do with my work, you know, and which, you know, Vignelli had a lot of different activities happening there and I would be on one project and other designers would be working on other things. And I found that really stimulating and I thought it'd be lonely to go off on my own. And luckily Pentagram was exactly what I was looking for because I had the autonomy that I wanted. I was able to kind of like do my own work, but do it in the context with these other partners. And at that point it was, uh, a small office, just, uh, you know, maybe 30 people. Uh, I joined and Paula Scher joined at about the same time in 1990. And we joined uh, Colin Forbes and uh, Woody Pirtle and Peter Harrison, who had been running that office as uh, a three-person office. And we became the fourth and fifth partners there. And, um, and you know, then I started learning a whole different thing, getting advice from Paula about how to do things or learning from uh, someone older like Colin Forbes or someone whose work was really different than mine, but that I really admired like Woody Pirtle. It was just really, uh, exciting for me. And so, um, I've been in that job now for 30 years, if you're doing the math. And so, um, I have the most boring resume in the world, uh, just having had two jobs over the course of my professional career. Um, by the way, I've been married to the same woman for 40 years. She was the first girl I kissed in my life on February 20th, 1974. And uh, so there's a pattern that emerges that, again, I've told all my kids, you don't have to marry the first person you kiss. Don't do what I did. Don't, don't do what mom did. Although my, my wife actually had a boyfriend before me. So... Um, so I, so uh, uh, I, my story is not that useful as a model, except to the degree that I think it goes back to that advice that I had earlier, where kind of finding your own, you know, trying to figure out what kind of design you really want to do takes a long, it's a long journey. And, you know, for me, it was, you know, I say it's still happening to a certain degree and certainly was happening, you know, in full force, well into my thirties, well into my forties and, you know, my partner, Paula Scher, is one who talks a lot about, you know, um, a career and a life in design being a series of steps and landings in a way where yeah. you have periods where you're going up the steps and you find yourself on a landing, which is good because that's, you know, architects put landings on staircases so you don't have heart attacks going up, you know, four stories of stairs without a break, right? Those landings provide you a chance to catch your breath, to sort of uh, uh, just make it step by step up the uh up the ladder. And I think, um, 
Uh, sometimes you'll be in a period where you don't think you've done anything new and that sense of restlessness a lot of times that getting back to Ira Glass kind of compels you to try something new and you don't necessarily have to change jobs all the time to achieve that although that's a, a way that a lot of people do it um, a lot of times it's just being attentive to uh, um, the opportunities that a new project is affording or taking on something that's outside your comfort zone or approaching it in a way that's not the way you'd usually approach it. Those are all things yeah. that I've tried to do to sort of like change up my, uh, uh, my approach. Great. Awesome. Um, next one up, I believe we got a great question from Emily. Emily, are you with us? Hi, I'm right here. I think there was someone before me. Oh, that's okay. Go for it. Okay. Um, let's see. Where is it? Okay. <laughs> thank, you. Um, thank you for taking your time to be here. You're welcome, um, Emily. Thank you. Um, so my question I had was, is there one piece or is like one crucial piece of advice that you go back to within design, like either for every project or it's just something that's proven itself to be true over the years? Um, yeah, these are some of my favorite pieces of advice. Um, uh, one of my mentors uh, before who predated Massimo Vignelli was uh, the guy who was a boss at one of my internships. Uh, a guy named Chris Pullman, who is the head of the design department at WGBH Television in Boston. That's their public television station. It's probably the premier public television station in the United States. They have, they have to this day, but they had in those days, in the 70s, when I was in school, this amazing in-house arts, what was then a little design studio. And we were doing like student guides to their educational programming and occasionally doing a, you know, a, a book. You know, it would be a spinoff of one of their shows or something like that. And um, I, I'm in touch with Chris to this day, actually. Um, and he won the AIGA medal. WGBH won the Corporate Design Leadership Award. So in effect, he won the medal twice. Just an amazing guy. Uh, has taught at Yale, his alma mater, Yale University. He was a MFA grad from there and has taught there for decades and decades. And I have, you know, he, he's just a great teacher and a great person. And I remember I was, you know, I was like, they had two interns and I was like the junior intern, right? I wasn't just an intern. I was the junior intern. Um, and so there was another intern named Lorraine Ferguson, who was like the senior intern. And, um, uh, and I was, um, uh, I was so eager to show what I could do that I got some, as I remember, I got some like stupid job that they would trust to a junior intern just because they felt sorry for him, which was maybe to design like a poster to hang up in the halls of the building for the blood drive, like, you know, about giving blood, you know, um, and, um, in my memory, I sort of worked on this for a solid week and I was determined to show, you know, every single thing I wanted to do as a designer all at once on this uh, poster by like making it look like a combination of all these different designers who had influenced me, who I admired, who I thought he might admire and all this stuff. It was just so jazzed up and complicated and designy and, um, uh, he and I and he usually didn't pay that much attention to the work I was doing because I was, as I said, the junior intern. And he, I remember he walked by the desk and said, uh, what's that? I said, Oh, um, it's the it's that poster for the blood drive that, uh, um, you know, that that uh, um, Doug asked me to do. He said, For the blood drive, and he said, Yeah, he says, Um, so this is supposed to make people give blood, and uh, I said, Yeah, and he said, Um, let's see, um, 
can I give you, can I make a suggestion? And he says, um, and then he basically said, I think you should take this part off. I think you should probably lose this part. I think maybe this is too small. Why don't you just take this stuff and make it all the same size? And when it was done, it was basically a poster that just said, give blood now in really big type. <laughs> and then, um, and then I said, that's it. And he said, yeah. Then he said, why avoid the obvious? And I sort of have remembered that whole thing about avoiding the obvious. I think as designers, we try very hard because we're trying, I think we admirably, we want to be creative, but less admirably, we want people to think we're creative. And I think we feel sometimes that unless we're constantly demonstrating how creative we are, <laughs> we're not doing our jobs right. And I think sometimes, a lot of times I'll sort of start a project with, with my designers when I'm working on, I'm saying, okay, what's like the most obvious thing we could do with this? I mean, if we just had to, you know, if, if it just was the most obvious solution in the world and we weren't trying to get credit for being clever, what would we do? And if you do that, you start with that, then you think, okay, um, how can we bring some joy and surprise into people's life? How can you make it something a little bit more special? And I do think we ended up making that blood posters a little bit more special somehow. But I do think, I, I, I remember sort of like this whole idea of, not avoiding the obvious as a, um, as a thing. And then the other advice I had was from actually from my partner, Paula, who I've mentioned a couple of times, and she was quoting her husband, uh, Seymour Quast, one of the co-founders of Pushkin Studios with Milton Glaser. And I was working on this, uh, <laughs> I was working on this project and it was just, it was one of those things where I got off on the wrong foot and it was just going worse and worse. And I just remember I was in this mode where I just kept thinking, I'm not you know, I've got this idea. I know it. I, I, I know it. I, I know it can, I, I know it can, I know I can do it. And the client was rejecting it. I knew it wasn't right. I could tell it wasn't right, but I kept thinking it was just like one hour away, one more thing away, one more something away from being perfect. And I remember, um, I remember I said to Paula, she said, what's wrong? And I said, I've got this idea. I've got this I've got this. I've got this really good idea, but I just can't make it work. And she, and she like looked at it. I'm sure she looked at it. She just said, "Maybe it's not a good idea." And then I, I and, and then she said, "You know, my husband. You know, Seymour has this thing where he says, and and I don't think this is. I don't think he made this up because I've heard it. I've heard versions of it elsewhere. But it's if you're digging a hole in the wrong place, making it deeper doesn't help. And um, and actually hearing that was so liberating to me because I think one of the things that happens to us as designers, and I think it might be related to that first experience I had as an intern, was that, you know, we sort of are so fixed on, um, on sort of, uh, uh, you know, our work ethic kind of makes us think if we just sort of bear down and kind of just like keep pushing and pushing and pushing, by God, you know, everyone can kind of like do it. You know, I mean, I can make this work. I can make this happen. And sometimes it takes just, just the liberating feel. And this happened on that job was I just thought, you know, and I remember I said to the designer who was working with me, I said, we're done with this. I, I, I want to come in tomorrow morning and just pretend we've never worked on this before. <laughs> and what would we do if we could do anything we wanted? And it was just some, it was so fun and liberating to come in. And I remember when we finally um, hit it. I was actually terrified because the client had already seen us come in. We were doing this very kind of thing that sort of was corresponding to 
a series of pre-agreed check-ins and a schedule and everything else. And I remember calling up the client like when I realized that we were going to do something completely different that all of a sudden I realized could work. And I said to her, at that meeting on Wednesday, would you mind if we... we're not going to show you anything we've done so far. We have something completely new. And they had never said what we were doing was bad. They just kept saying, "Eh, it's not quite there yet. But I said, we're going to show you something completely new. And she just said, oh, thank God. And so we came in, had this, and it was just a matter of, you know, I I, I sometimes use the metaphor. Sometimes you're trying to get into a house and the front door is locked. And first you try to pick the lock and then you uh, uh, try to jigger it. Then you think, well, maybe I can kind of like, you know, take the uh, door off its hinges. And then, then you sort of think, well, I'm just going to kind of get the biggest battering ram I can get and just keep smashing against the door till it's reduced to splinters. And then meanwhile, 20 paces away on the other side of the house is a screen door that's always unlocked. And you just can kind of walk, if you walk all the way around it, you might find <laughs> this like open door, open window. You open, you walk right in and it's that easy, right? And so sometimes it's like that with design. And what happens is, we sort of think, well, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that goes in the front door. That front door looks like the entrance, and by God, I'm going to enter that way or die trying. And then all it takes is the ability to sort of say, stop, wait a second. I'm just going to go for a little walk and see what else I can find. And sure enough, there's that uh, door that's open a crack that uh, doesn't need a key at all. You can just kind of walk right in without a sweat. So um, digging a hole in the wrong place, avoiding the obvious, these are all sort of the same things. And, uh, and a lot of it just has to do with maybe trusting your instincts, maybe with kind of releasing yourself from that work ethic that I've been dedicated to my whole life and just saying, well, wait, just stop, walk away, turn around, try something new. Those are all things that I think come easily to some designers that don't come easily for me. So I've remembered both those pieces of advice for my entire life, literally. That's Thank great. you so much. Good well, question, Emily. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for the question. Thanks. Um, I'm going to sum up a few people because I think a lot of people are asking something very similar to this, and then I want to change it because you've got a lot of educators and faculty members in this room as well. So hopefully you can give us a little insight here. Over the years, you've hired obviously many people, many interns. You've seen how design has been emerging over the time. What schools, what methods, what processes from these schools have consistently aligned with the skills that you are looking for and the talent you want to grab? Because you got a bunch of us here, anything you can give us that could be <coughs> a, a great bit of insight for us to change our ways as well, and what we could start doing um, differently. No, that's a great question. And so um, again, this may be reassuring or confusing, <laughs> but, um, um, I'm, I'm proud on my team. When I think about the designers that work for me, um, almost no two of them have, I, I'm not, I, I'm not a fan of hiring from the same school, for instance. Yeah. Um, even when I've, uh, uh you know, I, 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 thanks partly to Chris Pullman, I began teaching at Yale in the MFA program. Um, uh, not as, not as consistently as him and not as well as him, but, uh, um, you know, for the past um, uh, 25 years or so. And uh, yet I probably have never had more than two people from Yale working for me at one time, even mm-hmm. though I sort of see all of them all the time. I really try to have, I, I value the fact that, that having diverse points of view is, is, is a good thing. And right now I have, um, when I think about my designers, I have one Yale MFA. I've got a uh, um, someone who went to Middlebury College and then I think went to 
Parsons, uh, someone who went to um, University of Washington in Seattle, studied uh, with Doug Wadden in his latter days, someone who went to NC, I think NC State, um, you know, so for all, people from all over the place. And yeah. um, what I find I value more than anything else are people that are have the capacity to be curious about the context within which they're designing. And this is what I mean by that. Any design problem you have has all these formal aspects to it that are really important and really, you know, are the way that we sort of prove partly that we're good designers. And I remember at the beginning, that's, that, those were all I could see, you know, like for like, and, and that, and that story about the blood poster uh-huh. is exactly that. That wasn't about, I, I wasn't even imagining, you know, in those days, like what would make someone want to give blood in the hallways of WGBH? I just was thinking, you know, it's, you know, you know, what typeface, what color, what, what other graphic motifs, how do I resolve the white space? How do I do something that feels it's like an arresting visual thing. And instead of actually thinking about human communication in a specific context with other human beings with, with a goal towards making them undertake some action because of something I've put in front of them. Right. Mm-hmm. All, everything I just said sounds like the most damned obvious stuff in the world but man it was interesting how easy it was for me to ignore that partly because I've spent all my years of school had to do with doing stuff with typefaces and doing stuff with composition and doing stuff with doing just mastering my skill as a as a formal designer right and so the designers that I find work most happily on my team are ones when if they if if they're showing me a piece in their portfolio and it's a text you know by, you know, whomever, um, you know, they've, they've been given a text by Malcolm Gladwell to, you know, they've been asked to like type something out to do something on the theme of 10,000 hours from outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I'll, uh, by, Ma- by Malcolm Gladwell, I'll say something like, um, um, did you read that essay? Do you think it's true? And, um, and you'd be surprised how many people are like completely taken aback by that question. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that they would, well, people seldom say, you know, I've never had anyone say, nah, to hell with it. It's just a bunch of letters to me. You know, I don't care. You know, I don't care. What, you know, everybody tries to pretend they, they read the thing, right? But like often they don't think having an opinion about it or giving it that much thought or engaging with the specifics of it is as important as making something look really cool. And I appreciate people that can make things look really cool. And a lot of times, man, if I'm flipping through Instagram or if I'm online looking at stuff, things that look really cool, you know, they, they will jump out at least if it looks really cool in a way that I think is really cool. And everyone has a different idea about what really cool is, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but the things that actually lead to a happy experience as a working designer, at least on my team is, you know, if I, you know, like my designer who, um, uh, who I was working with to work on that commission for presidential debates project, he was like so into the history of the debates, into the sort of insignia that they had used over the years, sort of, you know, kind of was so attentive to, you know, when the client is talking about how critical it is that they can't be seen to be to be um, partisan, to be favoring, you know, Republicans or Democrats. They can't even seem to be favoring the idea that America will only and always have a two-party system. And so a part of the problem with kind of like, 
here's a mouth and here's a mouth and a question mark in the middle, it's presupposing that America is only a two-party system and that a debate can only happen between two people. And in fact, we've had a recent history of, of three people on that debate stage as recently as uh, uh, Ross Perot in um, 92, as I recall, and maybe even since then too, you know, yeah. um, but, uh, but so, but so, but, but like, you know, those are, that's, and, and what's interesting is if you care about those things, that's the territory in which you can really engage with clients. It has nothing, you know, I, 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 I said evidently somewhere that if, if you're in a meeting and you start talking, and if you're in a design meeting with a client and, the, and you start talking about typefaces, it means you're losing actually. And I, you know, in the best meetings I've had, we're only talking about what the subject matter is and what the context is and who the audience is and what the goals are. And, um, and it's not because I think that's a way to hustle a client. It's not to distract them, to, to kind of lull them into a state of trust so I can slip through the cool looking design that I want to do. It's because I gen they can tell that I genuinely find that stuff interesting. And my worst projects over the years and the things that I actually get afraid of now it's not like trying to do something new that I don't know how to do. It's those occasions where I'm working on something where I genuinely don't care about the subject and worse yet, where I actually um, uh, have a certain degree of, uh, of, of, of a negative feeling about the subject. I've only done that a couple of times and I tried to not do it at all anymore, but boy, I've had some bad experiences where I just, where there's just a mismatch between me and the subject matter that I'm, attempting to communicate. Uh, and so um, uh, as educators, one of the things that I, that I value is when um, I can sense that, uh, um, that, the, that the student I'm working with has been encouraged to not just really master sort of the design tools and design skills, but they're understanding that, the, um, uh, that all of that is happening in context that has to do with um, their connection with other human beings and, you know, the ideas and emotions and goals and dreams of those other human beings, right? And it's hard to do if you're, you know, nowadays it's not just a matter of, you know, knowing, knowing the kind of skills that I needed to know back in, you know, 1975 to 1980, but it's all the kinds of software programs people expected to master, all the different kinds of skills that, you know, that include, you know, programming and animation and all sorts of things that, you know, uh, there's a lot to learn just at the technical level. And then on top of that, to still maintain some sort of a connection to the world that exists beyond design, that world that uh, of people you're just trying to get to sign up for the blood drive, um, you know, while you're worrying about typefaces and PMS colors. Um, is, is that's hard to kind of keep the focus on. But if you're lucky, you have a few encounters as I've had over the course of my life where that gets driven home. So, you know, that's uh, assignments where uh, um, your students are being kind of provoked to engage with content, I guess is the mm -hmm. word for it, um, are things that I always value and look for in portfolios. And I find that some of your students won't respond well to that. And that's okay, because I think, there's that there's a kind of design work that actually um, um, is about kind of formal sensation and about image that I respect as well. And some of the some of the designer, you know, to tell you the truth, Massimo Vindelli was someone who actually was that that degree of formalism had a lot to do with his idea of how something should look. And I and you know 
he could take three books on three completely different subjects and make them look almost exactly the same and, um, uh, and make them all look beautiful and collectible and great. But still he, you know, he, he often said, um, um, if I'm setting, you know, he's in that movie, Helvetica, he says, said something like if I'm setting the word, if I'm picking a typeface for the word dog, I don't think the typeface should bark, you know? Um, and I get it right. You know, yet a dog is a dog and people who love dogs, you know, there's something about dogs, right? So, <laughs> um, so I think there's, um, uh, we can all have very different points of view about how this plays out. But I think one of the things that, uh, uh that I value is that attention to content, I suspect. Good, good. How are you doing on time? We, we got a good room for one more. Yeah, room for one more. Let's All right, it. perfect. Um, I'm going to do this. First one to raise their hand in the participant window. I see. I will allow you to come on in and raise your hand, and let's see what happens. Uh, uh, is it Kea? Are you there? Yes, I'm Perfect. Here. Hey, Hi, there Kea. you are. Hi. Hi. Awesome. Just chatting with the chat. Thank you so much for these insights and taking the time. You're out. welcome. You're welcome. I'm super thankful. This is amazing. Um, I actually have two questions, and they're short on time. They're a little bit separate, but um, the first one is: I see those are awesome books in the background. Yep. Um, could you recommend or share what three books had the most um, profound and insightful impact on your life? Um, and then um, <coughs> yeah. Right, Bless you. And then the second question is, in your essay on 79 essays on design, I remember there was one essay that you wrote about feeling like a plagiarist, like a copycat, yeah, 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 yeah. consciously. Yep. Do you still agree with that statement? And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, it just, it, it, it literally just happened again to me. I did a poster that I really liked, and then I saw a Joseph Miller Brockman poster that was sort of the poster that I inadvertently was stealing from. Now, luckily... You could do worse than steal from Joseph Miller Brockman. And, uh, <laughs> and he's sort of like Vignelli where I'm not sure you'd mind if people stole from that much. But I thought, you know, we did this poster and I just remember seeing it as a sketch and thinking, ooh, this looks so, I love the way this looks. This looks great. And it sort of was like resonating with me in this very way that I realized now was sort of suspicious. And it's because, you know, it's just a few moves away from being, a, uh, you know, one of his famous uh, 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 concert posters that he did. Um, and I just, no one's busted me on it. Interestingly enough, uh, you know, it's maybe it looks more like it than I thought, but I still, I still think there's something to watch out for. It's still a scary thing. There are so many people with, um, ideas out there and so many published ideas in a way that, you know, someone can say, you know, it, 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 it makes it hard. And of course, if you're trying to design a very simple logo, um, you're, that's your chances are higher. Yeah, your chances are <laughs> yeah. higher, and it's like very scary. And uh, there are legal ramifications to um, uh, inadvertent plagiarism, even if you uh, didn't mean it. So um, it's interesting. Um, I, I sort of agree with Howard. I'm sorry, I glanced. Dogs are good for Franklin. <laughs> um, uh, so, so yeah, your um, um, your second question about the books that I think have really affected the way I think about design. Um, I would name actually, there's a piece that I did that I'll, I'll um, uh, that maybe someone can kind of throw up a link on really fast. It was public, there's a website called It's Nice That, and they asked me what five books really influenced me. I sort of, I, I picked books that I thought were a little unexpected, but a couple of them are kind of on the list that I would keep today. So the one that wasn't on that list was um, 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 
Thoughts on Design by Paul Rand. That was the very first book he wrote when he was still a fairly young designer. He updated it over the years and he wrote books after that one. But his first one, which was very short, very poetic in a way, and has sort of his oldest work in it, has work that he was doing back in the 40s and 50s, is really, it's just a beautiful, lovely book. Chronicle republished a facsimile of the original edition. And it's, it's, it's a really handsome, just lovely, lovely book. Um, there, one of the books that was on that list that I had back in the day, and it's an architecture book. It's not for everyone. It's sort of, in a way, a completely different way of thinking about design. But it's a book called um, The Life and Death of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. She was an urban planner. And she was sort of the opposite of of the Vignelli modernist tradition in that she thought the way a city, you should design cities for people. And the best way to figure out how to design a city for people is to watch how people use cities. And so she was all about, not about like, let's bulldoze, let's bulldoze neighborhoods and just kind of, you know, put up giant, beautiful towers that are iconic. Instead, you know, watch how people use their front stoops, watch how they use alleyways. And it's sort of about design through, um, through observation. And I find actually what's interesting is that even though she wrote this book in the mid sixties and it has, you know, nary or obviously nary a reference to user interface design or UX or anything like that. I think that the principle she talks about and the spirit that she's making her point is um, very much about respecting users in a way and responding and being empathetic to what users do whether or not they're city dwellers or just someone you're asking to, you know, engage with a app. Right. And so that's my, um, uh, that's a second one I would say. And, um, maybe just, uh, because it had such an influence on me when I was, uh, you know, a very young designer in the seventies, uh, was, um, and again, again, these are all three design books, and I think you should read all kinds of books that aren't design books. Uh, please, please do that. I don't think designers have to read design books at all. But if you wanted three kind of design books, the Rand book, the Jane Jacobs book, and the one that actually um, you know, had a real influence on me was uh, uh, Milton Glaser's first book, uh, the one with the, the Dylan cover, um, which my parents gave me as a present when I was uh, – uh, you know, going off to design school back in, you know, 1975. And I just remember, you know, he's, he's very, gen the, the tone of voice that he strikes as he goes through that book um, uh, is just like, just like Milton Glaser is today. It's generous, it's wise, it's thoughtful, it has a kind of humility to it, but also a kind of fierce dedication to the, the idea that what we're doing is an art form. He has a kind of virtuosity that he really demonstrates in the pages of that book. And I remember just being so excited to sort of see that design could be practiced in all these different kinds of ways. One of the five books, one of the books that I um, uh, featured on my Instagram feed was a book that he designed uh, back in the mid 60s. Uh, that was just a throwaway piece of trash that I, I bet he did just for the money. And um, yet, when I was looking at it and photographing the pages of it, I was thinking, boy, they put so much, they had no money to spend on this. They were probably, probably banged it out in one weekend with a couple of late nights and some coffee. And it just has so much tender, loving care, you know, way more than they had to put on every page. You can tell that 
this is way more than was asked for, way more than anyone that bought the book wanted, but what an act of generosity that is to give people more than they expected, more than they paid for, more than they wanted to take yeah. them something they didn't expect, right? And so um, uh, that Milton Glaser book, which I think is just, just is, you know, graphic design, Milton Glaser, um, is a, a, a great book as well. So I could go, I love, you can tell I love books. There's in this house alone, there's three times as many books as you see there. And uh, wow. in my office, there's one more shelf that's about that crowded, uh, where all my where where I think most of the books I've been describing actually are. So, wow! Um, it's if you like to read, it's a great time to be a designer. A great time to be stuck in your house, actually. Now that I think of it, very true. Yeah. If, if we had room for one more, Augie, you had yeah, ahead, the Augie. last question. Let it go. go for it, Augie. Yes. Hey, if time permits, I wanted to ask you this question. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to know what you think about the future of graphic design and any new industries that might come about or like what you think would be uh, a value within the next 20 years or so. Um, well, <laughs> I, as I've said earlier, this is a time where I'm not sure what life is going to be like next week, never mind <laughs> in 20 years. Um, I do, you know, I, I actually, I, I do think I had this, someone asked me that question. I was trying to write it down. It just sounded so stupid when I was writing it that I finally gave up. But um, I, I do think we're getting very close to to a point where almost anyone, you know how, like, you know, if you go, if you know that show Stranger Things? Oh, yeah. You know, where it has the opening sequence and it's got that Ed Bengat typeface and it's kind of doing that thing. And you know, there's a website where you could type in Augie Martinez and it shows up in the Stranger <laughs> Things typeface. Augie's I, done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, who hasn't, right? But I bet that we are really close to if you just I, we're really close to the point where you could get some sort of program and you just would type in um and if someone's going to tell me this is already there I'm, i'll keep my eye on the uh on the chat um <laughs> you could type in give blood now and then say like Sister Corita Kent, give blood now like Joseph Miller Brockman, give blood <laughs> now like Massimo Vignelli, give blood now like Paula Cher, and hit boom and like that, you'd have a poster that was not just like some hack together thing, but a pretty convincing piece of graphic design. Yeah. And so to me, I wonder if that happens, if that degree of stylization can happen and it's you know, almost it's, it's so universally available that it is worth exactly zero pennies. Um, you know, that means that all of us, you know, and, th and th there's a whole thing about form versus content that I've been talking about on and off all afternoon. But I think, um, you know, once we get to that point, that means that designers have to bring something different to the table. Yep. And it can't just be style. It can't just be our finesse with typesetting. It can't be all the skills that I've spent you know, half a lifetime kind of wallowing in and mastering and honing and celebrating, you know, I still will. And I still, even, even when I described that piece of software, I thought I'd love to do that. That sounds like a blast. However, I do think that, um, uh, um, you know, how you actually provide real value to the world and how you really communicate with people in an age where, you know, for instance, you know, uh, you guys might be a little bit too young to remember MySpace, but you know there was a time when people thought there'd be a this thing called My that, that, that face you know that, that something like Facebook could never work because everyone would want their own page, 
to look different, to express their personality. So if I was visiting Augie Martinez, it would look, you know, you would pick the backgrounds, the typefaces, the colors and everything. Instead, you know, um, you know, the Facebook people had a theory that that isn't what people wanted. What people wanted was just the content and they would let the Facebook designers design exactly how that content would be displayed and decide a whole lot of other things as well. Right. And so I think that tension between who decides, who customizes, what's, how do we express what's personal? How do we express what's universal? To me, there's so, I mean, those are all design questions and they're deep, confusing design questions. So confusing that I don't feel even that I can articulate them with any particular expertise. But um, I do think that those are, those are the questions that are going to dominate your careers, I predict, yeah. right? And in the face of all of that, though, all of you may have a moment where you get to go back and make something with your hands that has nothing at all to do with an algorithm, nothing at all to do with pressing a button and having an immediate resolution, but has to do with something that's hard to do, that takes time to do, and takes actual, um, uh, um, a real commitment to do too. And I think those two things, the crafting you can make with your hand and the huge ideas that are dominating the way we actually communicate in the real world, I think are, you know, those, those two ranges still will define the, you know, the extremes of the world that we navigate and, um, the thing that you guys will be encountering, I predict, you know, for the rest of your lives. Yeah. You're very and right. It, and it'll be great. It'll be so much fun to do. <laughs> Trust me. It'll be fun. Yeah. I, I think if for anybody who's been to Adobe Max for the last few years, everything you just described is very much showing its its face into in our industry. These yeah, yeah. The AI and, and, and things that are making it obviously more productive and easier for us and those time consuming things. But I think you nailed it by saying we have to, we'll have to stand out even more yeah, as yeah. great designers because that still can't be replaced. Yeah, and it's exactly those right. things that what a great way to kind of sum it up. That's awesome. Exactly I think we're right. good guys. Thank you everybody for joining Michael. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this. Really Thanks. appreciate this. We'll be sharing this with everybody. So, um, and I'm going to try to find a way to maybe even get a good uh, recap of everybody on here, but you got a thousand thank yous coming through here. Yeah. Um, Mine I'm, too, mine too. I'm willing to stay on if there's any faculty or students that want to stay on after this and chat, more than and, happy to stay on. And Nick, if there's anything that I mentioned that you want to track down or uh, figure out, let me know and I'll be more than happy to fill in the blanks, okay? Good luck to everyone. Absolutely. It's going to be great. Okay? You got it. Thank Thanks you. again, Mike. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you so it. Bye-bye. Thank you. You got it.